Hello everyone, and welcome back to this new episode of A Brian Shave Story. So this episode will probably be the the final and conclusive episode of the year, at least. We are fast approaching 2022, and uh, Brian Schaefer is still missing. So there are, of course, intentions to continue this podcast series. Uh, this is not really something that I'm forced to do, uh, to cover Brian Schaefer's case. And uh, I feel there is a gap out there to fulfill, uh, even though this is not really investigative journalism I'm putting out there to you. Uh, I'm sort of trying to relay the information that I found out there about Brian's case. And a lot of podcasts have been covering his case, of course, uh, doing all these episodes. But it's sort of, for them, it's sort of this one hit wonder. They cover his case, they talk about the theories, and then they move on to the next case. Of course, they try to, they're still baffled and bewildered, uh, but that approach doesn't give any more answers. Uh, we're not sort of satisfied. And we, this clique, who are, I wouldn't say Brian Schiff fans, but we sort of have this case dear to our hearts we uh, were longing for more and uh, we want even more answers than we've got and we haven't had so many answers in the past so yeah continuing this uh, podcast series is definitely um, an aspiration and also try to get some more people on board so if one of you has anything in particular that you want to share or you want to participate even in in a way that you see fit, just reach out and I'm 100% sure that we can arrange something. So later on in this episode I will uh, talk about the year that was this uh, 2021 and... Uh, I'll cover the last part of the HLN episode and a few points that were sort of raised in that episode that are important to to mention. So first off, in reference to the former episode that I released, HLN episode coverage, uh, I just wanted to add and give a few remarks about that because I mentioned that uh, we could see the private investigator, Don Corbett, he was riding up the escalators. He also had a production, HLM production staff with him, behind him. Doesn't really mean that much that he's visiting this gateway building, but at the moment actually can be worth pointing out again that the Aglitona Salona bar that we've seen the pictures of and that uh, we've come to know, know in this story then, and probably some of you from Columbus have visited in the past. The bar actually closed down in 2018. So when you see Don Corbett running up those escalators, was actually heading to the former bar. And at the moment, there are OSU office spaces up there. And the lease was terminated. So the owners they decided to move out of the building. So they moved to another location in downtown Columbus. 
And uh, after this, they tore down all the equipment and all the furniture inside that bar and converted everything to basically office spaces for OSU. Uh, so the, the owners, they went out sort of with this press release. Uh, they thanked everyone who had visited the bar during the span of the actually 14 years that they were open. And during this time, they must have had tens of thousands of people visiting the premise. And they also wrote that they hoped to be open in time for the OSU senior crawl on April 30th. Have no worries, class of 2019. Aglituna Saluna 2 may be in a new location, but we will be back in time for your senior crawl. And a lot of things will stay the same, like the fish bowl, drinks, and the beach decor. So also in reference to Don Corbett, he was actually laid off by uh, the remaining uh, member of the Schaefer family, which is Derek. So as far as we know, Don Corbett has worked Brian's case pro bono during all these years and has been there assisting in whatever means he could provide to the investigators and the reason to why he got distanced from this case is that it brought some attention to, to Derek that he wasn't that content with. As you are aware, there are some really weirdos out there. They sort of bothered Derek and he, he of course wanted to finance it for his brother, but you know, he has his own life to live also. So being approached by this, uh, I would say sick people, of course is hampering and doesn't really provide any more answers. So um, that's, that's part of the reason that sort of in one way Derek wanted to distance himself. Can be also Don Corbett's approach, possibly. Perhaps they didn't agree on some parts in this uh, disappearance. What Derek has mentioned in a few interviews that he's given is that uh, it's not entirely unfeasible that Brian could have run away and so to say left everything behind so uh, I haven't really seen other references from coming out from Derek Randy always came out saying that he believed that something happened to Brian sort of this foul play scenario he never thought that Brian would intentionally do something like this to his family but later Randy as time went on uh, wasn't an entirely stranger to the idea that uh, Brian could have suffered from a sort of a nervous breakdown that night and that he really wasn't himself and this caused him to behave in this way and live the way he did. Uh, this is something that grew with time and it's not really unheard of in these cases that uh, when there aren't any answers provided people still have hope. So, of course... The person is missing, but there aren't really any evidence picked up that indicates something sinister or nefarious. So there is a slim chance that this person actually might still be alive out there. So in one way, they don't want these feelings to, to fade away. And uh, 
That was kind of important also why I covered the case of Dennis Arda because uh, basically he also from one moment to the next completely gone. And uh, and in fact, uh, as time went on in that case also, there similarities with Dennis Arda's brother basically out there to try to forward everyone some answers. But in the last interview that he gave before actually Dennis was found, uh, he sort of openly contemplated that he actually could be alive and out there. And, uh, and he said that the other family members all believed that Dennis Arda was alive and out there. And then, of course, we have this uh, tragic finding, uh, which sort of catapults everything. So then the brother mentioned that he had tried to remain visceral, that, you know, there were some chances that he could be alive. But then actually we find Dennis Arda. And so the ultimate reference that we got from Randy and Derek is that there is sort of this hope that even though they don't necessarily believe that Brian could have hit it and be out there voluntarily, there is a chance that he might be still alive. And uh, this trip to Miami, Florida. I also am sort of vague about uh, how this came about. And we all know that it was Brian's mom's last gift to him. And I've actually found a reference now to an article. And it was published in May of 2006. Where it's Alexis who is interviewed. And she mentions that Brian was handed over money. And he decided to plan his trip. And to go to Miami. Research. You know, for them to have this wonderful trip together. So Renee didn't tell him two flight tickets. But she gave him money. So we finally have this answer about that. So let me continue with the year that was. The remaining parts of the HLN episode. And also some thoughts on what we all can do to try to forward some answers in this mysterious disappearance. So that uh, somewhat chilly night of the 1st of April 2006, Brian Schaefer disappeared. After having visited the bar Daglituna Saluna at 2am in the morning, he sort of disappeared into thin air. 
and as of today, no traces have been found, and we still don't know what happened to him. But that it still can be out there is something that, of course, many hope until we know what happened or until we find Baron Schaefer. The authorities in the US cannot with 100% certainty say that Brian is deceased. So on the 31st of March, on the 15-year mark of his disappearance, they released a new sketch on how Brian possibly would look today. So in this cooperation between the Ohio State Attorney and a special unit within the police, a renowned sketch artist managed to provide this portrait of Brian. They used pictures of both his parents and his little brother Derek, and they sort of morphed them into this new sketch. They also made some publicity and they tried to give this uh, well-needed attention to the case. How the response has been from the public, we're not really sure. We haven't received any updates on that. Probably there's been some tips handed over and people have probably phoned in. But nothing that we have been told in public. And so this year also, we had this long-awaited episode under this series, Real Life Nightmare, that was produced by Ichilan. And that was aired the 21st of November. Roughly, we also had about 60 podcast episodes about Brian Schaefer on almost as many podcasts. So I also wanted to take this opportunity to thank you all for listening to this podcast series. And uh, I know it's not perfect, uh, but I'm sort of basically a guy, a dude like you. Uh, The only thing that differs is that I got obsessed by this case and I found a lot of information about it. But no source that could provide, so to say, most or all of the info. So in the beginning we just had this mysterious vanishing. A guy enters a bar and it's not seen leaving. So then some other podcast came around and provided these vital clues. But still, when you reach the point where there isn't any more to investigate and research, then also that phenomenon stops short of providing more answers. So with the Brian Schaefer story, we have a place where we can all go to. And at least uh, we know that uh, we're all welcomed in one way. I don't do this to to earn anything. And I wasn't really into social media before this even. But of course, I realized I actually posted. If you have a look on my Instagram account, I have quite a lot of material. And I actually posted in the beginning, I posted that on uh, on the Podbean webpage of the series. But probably no one of you figured this out. So I realized, you know, to actually this is quite valuable information too. And it helps bring more attention to the series. I'm not doing all this, putting all this time and work for all this information just to be out there untraceable. So of course it's my aim that as many of you as possible get to listen to this information. And then of course, what ultimately happened to Brian Schaefer is up to you to decide. That's always been my point. And I know that in some episodes I go more for some of the theories and I haven't really covered the the runaway aspect of this. But uh, 
there are other people out there who can provide a better picture of this scenario in case that happened, in case Brian left voluntarily. And if that is the fact, then there are other more suitable people out there who can provide information and can provide viewpoints of this. Um, it can be, I bring my own experience into this, my own life experience. And as I mentioned to you in previous episodes also, I, I worked in the hotel industry for quite many years. And we had a lot of bars and restaurants in those premises. And especially the last one I worked at. And uh, I've also worked as a bartender for a period of time as a waiter. I mean, I felt when I was working, I was basically out partying. Even though I had work to attend to, it felt like I was going out almost every weekend. And I've learned how people behave and how patrons behave. And during my last employment in the industry, I was in charge of security for this astounding hotel, actually. If you're visiting Stockholm, you have to check this place out because it's, it's a really fantastic hotel. And it's called Hotel Rival. Uh, so if you come to Stockholm, go there. Spend your nights there. I really mean this. And uh, we had no accidents. I mean, nothing even remotely similar to what happened to Brian Schaefer happened in one instance. And I worked there for four years. So we only had one peculiar incident, actually, that I can share. Otherwise, you can just fast forward. But <laughs> So what usually was that when you entered as a night manager, you... You started your shift at 10 p.m. And this was during the weekend, so a lot of commotion, a lot of people. We also had external patrons and guests visiting. So we had three bars, basically. And so you entered, and on the first floor you had this uh, small lounge bar with maybe 40, 50 seats. And then you went to stair up, and then you had a cocktail bar with 20, 30 seats as well. And then you went up to the second floor, basically. And you had this huge restaurant with hundreds of seatings and the major bars also were there. So security was an issue at our premise because we had a lot of... Uh, Benny Weber was the owner. It attracted all this attention towards these artists and, and celebrities and singers and whatnot. We had all the major groups they basically all stayed at the Rival Hotel. So we had about 100 rooms. So the hotel guests and the external guests were sort of mingling together. But in the restaurant from the second floor, you had this access towards the hotel. This was a staircase, and the reception area where I was working was directly beneath this staircase. So basically, I could keep track of the people who exited that way were hotel guests and not external patrons. So it used to happen quite frequently actually that other people, not supposed guests, exited this way. But then usually they came down this uh, staircase and in the reception area and I basically told them that, you know, this is the hotel. So the issue with this staircase was that if you continued past the reception area, you ended up in these conference halls. And that was a sort of a big no-no, of course. You don't want people in the middle of the night venturing off down in those areas. So we were specifically told to keep track of this. That neither 
the hotel guests or these external patrons took that route. So this Friday, I believe it was a Friday, I was answering some calls and I was sort of busy in the reception area and I could hear a couple going down the stairs from the restaurant. And then instead of exiting to the reception, they continued further down the staircase. So the regular thing is that they would have just come back up. And then I would have approached them and told them, you know, are you hotel guests? Are you patrons? But this never happened, actually. They didn't return back up. So on this particular instance, I had to call security. They came, couldn't find this couple. And then I started to, you know, theorize if I dreamt it, if I really heard and saw someone go down there. There were paintings on the wall. So I basically saw a reflection of the woman. And I also used the one of the guards to, you know, make it look like I made him go up and down the stairs to see if I saw his reflection in this painting and I could see it. So, so basically I had this couple, they uh, went down into this area and then just they just vanished. We searched many hours for them and we also, you know, tried to force the door open if they had managed to, to do that. But it was basically untouchable. And we checked all this huge conference hall lounges area and uh, we didn't find them so so this one was really weird and you know some staff lady said that you know it's an ancient building maybe this was sort of a wobbly supernatural thing who knows so after the hotel industry i started to uh, proceed and study to be an accountant and to work with economy and finances so i took this degree as an accountant my first employment there was actually for a construction company and uh, wasn't overly into construction but of course you learn uh, during the span of all these years and I actually ended up acquiring this whole firm eventually but uh, at the peak we were about 30 employees and uh, working from the office taking care of the finances but uh, at the most we had six seven project ongoing all these places you never really visited these construction areas but since you were doing you know you had to you had this discussion with the employees and you had to do this paperwork uh, this project didn't finish in one day they continued for quite a bit of time and the bosses you know they called from i'm in this spot the other guy is in this spot uh, 10 people are over there. You had to sort of start to sort of visualize how this construction was being performed. So it actually helped me quite a bit, I think. So so finding out about Brian Schaefer's case and that uh, we sort of passed the Ugly Tuna Salona bar, then we had this building to deal with and all that was going on in that building. So... So this became a hurdle that uh, I wanted to pass, try to understand the, the layout of this building and uh, if there was some chance that something could have happened in there in regards to Brian Schaefer. He's basically the guy who's never seen living and, and a person that's gone missing. 
And then in connection to these other episodes that I made, really, when authorities start saying that they've done everything they can and they, they've searched the whole place, that's when you that's when you should start to get your cold feet to become wary. Also considering that they spent two days looking inside that premise. And then we know that Randy Schaefer brought his own canines in there and they looked for Brian in there. But uh, And a lot has been said about the construction area, of course, uh, that it wasn't that bad. And, you know, uh, we had a news team that entered parts of the construction area through the Jim and Jones construction entrance. I think I, I can perhaps post these images on Instagram, but it was a bat cave in there. You see this sort of suspended walkway over what seems to be unpassable and uncrossable ground beneath it. So who knows what happened in there. So I can put this out and you can make your own mind. It's not really a spot that you would want to traverse in a intoxicated condition. I can leave it at that. And on top of that, if the lead detective in a case believes that Brian Schaefer ultimately got out through one of these construction exits, one could just argue that pondering the condition he was in, uh, there was a higher chance that he didn't make it out. And the issue is that, unfortunately, after they conducted their investigation outdoors, they perhaps wanted to get back to the building the place was fully constructed by now. So the thing that sticks out with Brian Schaefer's case in comparison to other cases is that someone cannot stumble upon his remains. And it would require an active search for Brian inside that building if they want to get this ultimate answer that is not still there. The lead detective came out saying on this episode that he's totally adamant that he's not in there. So will this happen? (laughs) This uh, disappearance requires a great deal of patience and uh, also interest in detail and even nostalgia. Um, everyone can be attracted by, so to speak, making a quick decision about different scenarios and what could have happened to Brian. To be able to remain firm and committed really would require some firm belief. That's that's kind of the hard part in this, uh, this series is You cannot all the time ponder all the various theories out there. Uh, Gets you confused and distracted. And then it's hard in this case also to stay committed to one theory. So yeah, that's the mystery of the Brian Schaefer saga. Simply. And uh, this is not a mystery for everyone either. Uh, If you have a look at the HLN uh, YouTube channel, you can compare the the two uh, snake pics that were put out. So we have the one on Brian Schaefer and we have the one on Kenny Veach. And the one with Kenny Veach has gotten uh, 70,000 views and has been out as long as Brian Schaefer's snake pic, which has around 3,000 views. So even though Brian Schaefer's case is one of the biggest mystery, it's not really a big case out there. Even though it's been covered by podcasts and whatever, is not really a huge case out there. So whatever we can do to attract more attention to it, the better off we are. 
So the strength in being many is that this can really take you off. Can I do some more? I mean, you can always do more. Uh, and can I ask you to do more than just listen to these podcast episodes? No. But if you share this series and talk about Brian Schiff's disappearance in general, we're reaching the point of, uh, you know, tipping the balance a little bit. Because if we, we can provide more and we can have new stuff. So personally, I'll accept both. Uh, the more info, even though it's not really new info, it's, uh, it's appealing to me. But to some people, I mean, enough is enough. And what sort of gets their thing going is the new. So the nicest one about this part is that the more interest there is out there, the more those that possess those that can provide new information, they're sort of made aware of our interest and can accommodate this. So in this aspect, we can all do more and continue to do more. So actually, this actually an episode was new. And in the last episode we got to hear, I commented roughly about half of the episode. And the final part of the episode is really a lot of commercial, but... Uh, we got two things that I wanted to bring up. And the first one is this uh, check that Randy wrote to Brian. It was of the amount of $4,500. And was supposed to go directly to the university to pay his uh, fees after spring break. And Brian didn't hand this check in. So there was some speculation that he didn't hand this check in to the university because he didn't have plans to continue his studies. And I would say that he probably forgot about it. Uh, this whole weeks leading up to his disappearance was completely madness. And if he didn't cash this check in, he would have gotten a reminder after he came back and would have paid the remaining balance from there. So this is sort of a fact that you, you place in a drawer that you know fits your theories. But I mean, uh, I don't think we can draw too many conclusions out of that. And then we had this uh, detail at the end of the episode that was provided by John Hurst. And that can easily be taken for something that you've heard previously. Uh, unfortunately, it wasn't that pleasant to, to hear this. But uh, at the end, John Hurst talks about his dedication in this case. And that every police officer usually has a case that has affected them more than other cases. And, and Brian Schaefer's disappearance was this case for him. So in relation to this detail, he mentions that his major remorse in his case is that during the short time before they commenced their investigation, some of these waste containers around the gateway building have been unloaded. And not only unloaded, but also sent away to another state for disposal. And they weren't able to track this waste and to conduct their investigation there so if Brian was dumped in one of these waste containers or voluntarily jumped into one of these containers because he wanted to sleep there due to his intoxication we now probably never will know if this is what happened to him however we have some uh, mitigating circumstances to this uh, Terrible scenario, fortunately. You know, worth considering with this 
slightly unfortunate news in the bag. Because uh, for those of us who has, who has followed the case know is that his immediate family searched dumpsters on Sunday already. When it was suspected that something had happened to Brian. So Alexis recounted that she had had her heart in the throat every time she lifted the lid on these waste containers. And this information has been persistent over the years. It indicates that uh, there was a serious attempt early on to try to find Brian. And it wasn't just a lid that they lifted in one container that they looked through. But of course that work cannot be measured by later attempts made by the Columbus police. Who in a larger area methodically went through this waste. And later even made their way to Franklin County and the landfill over there. But we can certainly hope that some of these containers were checked before they were sent to Tennessee. And we can also make some assumptions that can be relevant. Because in a scenario of ending up in such a container and vanishing forever, there are several factors that must come into play at the same time. In the event of a perpetrator, Brian must not only have been attacked, but also overpowered and rendered unconscious without the possibility to defend himself anymore or have the opportunity to call for help. So in which way did they went about to cause this violence? Was it a, a gun or a knife? A knife would have left traces of blood and firearms would have left these acoustic imprints. So is it then a simple murder by which the perpetrator, without being seen or heard, considered to have so much time available that he tried to dump Brian's body in a container? And lifting all these pounds of dead weight straight up and down into a container. It's not really an easy task. And were these containers just there right at hand, where Brian was then supposedly murdered, or did they have to drag his body around before they managed to get him in a container? And at the end of the day, what's really the motive for having Brian murdered and dumped in this way? The fact that it was carried out in such a way that it failed to leave any traces during either the time that it was going on and that it ends with Brian ending up in this container without anyone subsequently noticing anything at all. Plus the garbage truck just comes and empties the contents without also noticing something. And then is taken to an area which you ultimately cannot search. It can be an hypothesis. But there's so much that has to happen at once, all at once. That it just easily could have happened another thing in the first place. Uh, a crime usually leaves a trail. A perpetrator out there in the town, in the city environment who, who kills Brian cannot fend off any possible scenarios that might arise. This in case sounds like the perfectly executed atrocity in this urban environment. And then could Brian have voluntarily laid down in this container to sleep the rush off for example and have been missed and he didn't wake up when it was time to empty the container a number of hours later. So if you ponder this scenario we actually have a similar incident which took place in Suffolk in England. In the town of Bury St. Edmunds, one evening in September 2016, was a soldier 
Corey McKeague and he was out on a bar crawl with friends. So after being ejected from a bar, he was overly intoxicated. He was separated from his friends and after this Corey disappeared for good. So in subsequent searches, the police find video surveillance of him and he sees strolling around in the morning hours in different parts of the city. In an area near several garbage containers he's seen for the last time. But uh, before it was determined what happened to him, it took time. And initial judgments led nowhere. And then over time the picture cleared enough for his relatives to get an answer. So ultimately it is believed that Corey McKeague laid himself down in this intoxicated condition in one of these containers and he was taken to to this landfill nearby and the police spent one million pounds searching this landfill but never made any finds and afterwards it was determined that the garbage truck had an extra weight of 100 kilos which was Corey's weight and his phone had also indicated different pings on the same route that the garbage truck would have taken to this landfill so Potentially, how do you assess the likelihood that this could have happened to Brian Schaefer? Well, unlike Corey McKeague, there's never been any evidence that this is what happened. Columbus police of course investigated this trail, but it was more sort of a necessary evil that needed to be removed from the list of possible scenarios. But this news from the lead detective it sort of augments the chances that this could have happened, unfortunately. And it's something that we might have to consider a little bit more than previously. But that's the end of that. So the final point I was going to make was that John Hurst is adamant that Brian Schaefer made it out at night. And the interesting part is that sometimes saying things in a certain way or perhaps not even mentioning something can be more telling actually than what is said. So I got the impression that John Hurst didn't insist that it was an excellent search effort inside the building that reveals that Brian Schaefer isn't still there. He now, 15 years later, is so absolutely adamant that Brian Schaefer isn't in that building seems to insinuate between the lines that investigators have something up their sleeve that makes them convinced that Brian Schaefer left the building that night. And it's also worth emphasizing the cryptic statements that John Hurst has made in connection with Brian's disappearance as the lead detective for 13 years and still dedicated to the case as retired he must balance on this very thin line not to reveal anything secret or to violate you know the confidentiality that still remains so can there be then strange word choices or sentences from the from the former lead detective that only makes you more puzzled in 2018 John Hurst tells how Brian Schaefer possibly got out of the gateway building by using the phrase The basic indication right now is somehow he got down into the construction area and most likely got exited out of there. So pardon the pun, but this phrase is not really clearly, correctly worded in English. Since this is quite critical, we have a statement from the individual who knows the most about the case. So I wanted to have this sentence translated in English. And I actually received help from a forensic psychologist to decipher this statement. If that 
is the exact phrase that the detective used. It means Brian left the area, but in the hands of someone else. But it's a strange way to say it. By using got exited, it would mean that the fact that he left happened to him, rather than that he left on his own. I mean, it's not a common expression. And one can ultimately imagine that Hurst leave the questions open on how Brad Schaefer got out, if this was at his own hands or if someone else might have done it. And on the occasion of the sketch release on March 31st of this year, uh, there was a news team who got hold of John Hurst. And on the question if Brian could still be alive, he replied that there was a 25% chance that he could be alive and an equal chance that he could be dead. And the reporter also wondered what happened to the remaining 50%. So to go into the four in mathematical terms to try to analyze this answer is not worth it. We simply have to say that there is probably a lot between the lines in these expressions. And it's therefore important for us to be involved and on our toes if necessary to get some sensible answers in the end. The question is, is there anything the Columbus police knows that we as general public don't? in Brian Schaefer's case. And it's very likely. And could all that information, if it comes out to the public, help crack this riddle of what might have happened to Brian Schaefer? And probably not, but... However, we have a small indication of what might happen if only some portions of the whole information come out. And it happened last week. But more on this in eventual coming episodes. So thank you so much for listening. And check out Instagram. And spread the word about Brian Schaefer and his disappearance. I wish you all a very good Christmas and a happy new year. Until next time. Bye bye.